This is an ABC podcast. What do we need for a good and effective education in high school as well as universities? You might say creative teachers, student-centred learning, job relevance, innovation and modern technology. And yes, that's all true. But one important piece is missing. And on this Big Ideas, we're looking for wisdom in education. Hello, I'm Paul Barclay on Radio National and the ABC Listen app. So why wisdom? And what's meant by wisdom in this context? Wisdom is the ability to put together those things that seem to be a part. The importance of both and in education, that we need both faith and reason, that we need both knowledge and love, rather than either or, which tends to be a more an analytical approach to education, a more sort of breaking down approach. Let's just focus on this to the exclusion of that. In general, what we see in education is a lack of unity amongst these disparate areas. There's no sense of thinking, well, how do they fit together? And a wisdom approach to education, there was a real holistic understanding of learning. And this is something I think that we have lost. That's Dr. Paul Morrissey, president of Campion College, and he guides us through the idea that we need an integrated approach to knowledge and learning. And wisdom, he says, comes from a classical education and learning about philosophy. He doesn't dismiss that we need expert knowledge, particularly at higher levels, but even the specialists should have a foundation in philosophy. A key difference in education or a classical approach to education being between analogy versus analysis. Both are important. We've tended to forget about analogy of bringing things together to help explain the whole by overemphasizing analysis of issues, problems, and so on. We need both, but there's been a, a drop-off in terms of thinking of analogy. And in some ways, my, my paper is making a similar argument, but uh, using wisdom as the theme. You know, my argument is that um, a lot of contemporary debates about education use words that are, are very much orientated towards a more utilitarian approach to education. You know, words like um, innovation, job ready, even a, even a word like critical thinking, which I think lends itself to a classical approach to education, the way it tends to be used is more in the sense of, can you analyse a problem, this specific problem? So again, a more specialisation, more utilitarian approach to education. And we've lost and very little is said about um, wisdom in education, certainly amongst sort of educational uh, debates, at least in Australia, and educational uh, theorists. And even in schools and universities, not a lot has spoken about wisdom. So that's the theme of this paper is to really look at, at wisdom. The structure will be a, a, just a brief introduction to the idea of wisdom. The three themes that will follow from that is integration in education, the importance with a, a wisdom approach to see integration as essential. The next being uh, the idea of co-natural knowledge, knowledge through experience, knowledge and love going together, co-natural knowledge, and finally, to look at wisdom in a technological age, the importance of wonder and silence in learning. So that's the plan. So we'll see how we go. So 
wisdom, when we talk about wisdom, it's a, it can be a fairly opaque term. And, and often when I raise wisdom with sort of younger people, and talk about what does a wise person look like to you? And they always come across with, you know, their caricatures of someone who's old. <laughs> so we tend to associate wisdom with age, which there's some real truth to that. Usually a beard, uh, glasses too. These are sort of caricatures that people associate with wisdom. In popular culture, at least contemporary one, you know, Dumbledore or Gandalf, are very stereotypical wisdom sort of figures. But wisdom is, is deeper than that, deeper than looks, although age is a, an important aspect of, of wisdom, I think. For the Greeks, wisdom or prudence, you know, we can um, use both terms here interchangeably. So as a virtue, it's a learned thing. And this is where age is often associated with wisdom, that we learn, we learn things and thus grow in wisdom. So wisdom, in order to learn something, we need a, need a master. We need someone to teach us. So the disciple learning from the master. And specifically, wisdom is that virtue associated with moral knowledge. So the four cardinal virtues about the moral life, the good life, and wisdom, the queen of the virtues, or the charioteer, using a, a Roman sort of image, the charioteer of the virtues is the one that drives the others because it knows the good. The wise person knows the good or can choose the best of two goods or can avoid evil. So prudence, to be a good person, to flourish as a human, wisdom is the charioteer, the queen of the virtues. So wisdom in this virtue sense is, a, is an intellectual virtue to do with our, our mind. And so there's a very much an educational aspect of wisdom in the moral life. But I think there's also an aspect of wisdom, and, and the Greeks were onto this as well, that saw in the gaining of wisdom, in learning to be wise, that ability to put things together that seem to be disparate. And I think this is really important when thinking about education in wisdom, that wisdom is the ability to put together those things that seem to be apart. Now, Thomas Aquinas, a great thinker of the virtues of the Middle Ages, he described wisdom in terms of an analogy with the, with the architect and the building. To have a building, you need building materials, you need specialist builders in various trades, but you need someone to put it all together as a whole, and that person is the architect. And that's really what the wise person is able to do, to put things together that seem to be apart. Another way to think of wisdom in this sense, I think, is, is the importance of both and in education and in thinking of the human person really in general, both and, that we are spirit, both spirit and matter, that we need both faith and reason, that we need both knowledge and love, rather than either or, which tends to be a more an analytical approach to education, a more sort of breaking down approach. Let's just focus on this to the exclusion of that. The wisdom approach is always both and. And I think this is something that we've lost to a certain extent, you know, over centuries really, but certainly in current debates. That's just to give a quick introduction to this idea of seeing wisdom and, and the idea of wisdom and associating with education. You know, when, when looking at the history of education in the West, 
really wisdom, this idea of wisdom has been really there throughout. If we're going to talk about a fracture that, that occurs in the West in, in a more holistic sense of, of wisdom and education, is possibly in the Enlightenment. So we have this a greater sense of focusing on that which can be seen and measured and, and scientific knowledge. Not everywhere, not always. Obviously, it was the, the romantics were pushed back on that. But really at the heart of education throughout the West, you know, from the Greeks and Romans to the Carolinian period, the, the monasteries, the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, the great humanists, wisdom is really at the heart. And any movement regarding classical education, I think, is aware of this. What I want to do now is look at uh, the importance of integration. And in a sense, I've already touched on that integration in education under this banner of wisdom. The opposite of integration is fragmentation. And this is, uh, or fracturing, where things are separated. And we see this in education where we have disciplines. Now, disciplines in and of themselves or academic areas or higher education faculties, these are all important things. But in general, what we see in education, and really I think in some ways right through, is a lack of unity amongst these disparate areas. There's no sense of thinking, well, how do they fit together? Is there any sense that they fit together? And is there any way of thinking about them belonging together? in education today. And that, I think, is, is a problem. So wisdom and a wisdom approach to education does see this. So, for example, even for the Greeks who, you know, loved to learn and learn about a lot of different things. And there's a stereotypical idea that the Greeks, you know, were the, gave birth to science and then we had a big break until sort of the Enlightenment <laughs> and then things picked up again. But the Greeks, although they were pursuers of science and pioneers of science, um, they were also great pioneers of bringing the idea of the divine into understanding the universe in a coherent way, not in a sort of mythological way, but in a coherent way. They were great believers in the, in the sense that the philosopher and the scientist can be friends and should be friends. There was a real holistic understanding of learning. And this is something I think that we have lost in the West, at least in, in an overall sense, in our approach to education. One great thinker, a uh, recent thinker, great philosopher, is Alastair McIntyre, and he's, he's given a bit of thought to this, particularly in terms of universities more so, but, but also in education in general. And McIntyre argues that, Universities, so here he's talking about universities today, are really multiversities, where he says that philosophy has been so eliminated that it plays no real part in the university experience or university life. And he said this is obviously bad for philosophers looking for work, but it's also bad for the whole university community. And he argues this because philosophy, and it, for him as a as a Christian philosophy, he also says theology has a place here, are unifying disciplines and that a scientist who can philosophize will be a better scientist. A doctor who's done some philosophy will be a better doctor. A lawyer who can philosophize will be a better lawyer and so on and so forth. 
And this idea of education has certainly been lost, he says, in uh, contemporary Western universities, which are, in a sense, multiversities, where each faculty is specialised in its own areas and has no real connection to the other faculties. This impoverishes everyone. Now, wisdom in the sense of it um, being in in this traditional understanding of wisdom and, and wisdom in education has been replaced by a more technical knowledge, more calculated reasoning, and even, in a sense, artistic creativity. Each can be sort of out on their own and never really speaking to the other. And I think that's, that's very true. Newman, who wrote you know, his great classic on education, the idea of a university, argued for the importance of a liberal education. By liberal here, he means that, again, we can probably almost anonymously put it with classical education. But the importance of a liberal education that unites rather than fragments. And so I'll give you this quote from Newman's great work where he talks about the liberally educated student who apprehends the great outlines of knowledge, the principles on which it rests, the scale of its parts, its lights and its shades, its great points and its little points, as he otherwise cannot apprehend them. Hence it is that his education is called liberal. He, she, has a habit of mind which is formed and lasts through life, of which the attributes are freedom, equitableness, calmness, moderation, and wisdom, or what in a former discourse I have ventured to call a philosophical habit, end quote. And so Newman saw the university's role, and I guess education in general, of liberally educating students and liberally educating them, giving them this freedom, this liberty to have this habit of mind that can apprehend these great outlines of knowledge. Furthermore, he argues that the acquiring of professional or vocational knowledge that a society needs, and this is a given even for someone like Newman, Vocational and professional knowledge is needed by citizens, but we need these citizens who are vocationally and professionally trained to be liberally minded, to be liberally educated, so as to mitigate, he argues, against fragmentation. And I think this is so, so true. And this is more, I guess, that utilitarian dimension of an education and wisdom or a liberal education in general is that it is an education, I would say, in a common sense approach to problems and an approach to problems or difficulties or situations or the present moment that can contextualise and take into account varying perspectives, competing interests, history, the future, the present, and so on and so forth. And if you take any of the issues that seem to fragment us today and any you know, contemporary policy issue, what seems to be lacking are people who are tackling these problems who are liberally minded in the sense that human stresses. So that this liberal education and education in wisdom is absolutely crucial towards you know, a common sense approach to 
anything one does as a citizen and certainly in the professional world. And just to give, you know, some some examples, to give some ideas, I would think even, even with the, you know, the massive health crisis, pandemic and so on, sometimes it seems to me that we've been crying out for those in charge of public policy who are a bit more liberally minded approaching these, these issues, being able to contextualise, know a lot of history, to be able to look at competing interests, use the specialisations that people bring to issues and make um, some coherent or at least um, reasonable decisions. But even in terms of, you know, those hyper-specialised areas like a, a surgeon or a medical professional, a lawyer, they are better at what they do if they have had an exposure to liberal education, particularly in understanding issues of justice and fairness, particularly in terms of understanding that the human person is not a machine and so on and so forth. These are all habits of mind that come from a liberal education. and even though I think a lot of people still receive to a certain degree, and one can't avoid it as human persons, some sense of a liberal education through their schooling, through their home lives, through their own reading and experience of, of culture, it's not, it's not explicit and not explicit enough in our educational systems and in our culture in general. And I think that's to our great detriment. What I want to move to now is, is an understanding of knowledge that in the Middle Ages was called co-natural knowledge. And I think this is a another important dimension of an education in wisdom. So co-natural knowledge is a, is a way of knowing that is not just about reading books or intellectualizing, but it's a knowledge that comes about through doing. And here it connects to that idea of virtue, that we grow in virtue and grow in wisdom through experience. So co-natural knowledge is, is that knowledge which is gained by experience and sympathy towards that which we want to know. And so this is very obvious in the practical realm of things. So, for example, one learns how to change a tyre on a car in a far deeper way by actually changing a tyre than by simply reading about how to change a tyre. Now, I know in this age of the internet, even I can um, exhibit some handyman qualities around the house because I just YouTube, how do I change a washer on the tap? Or how do I you know, do this for this broken dishwasher? I might watch it or read some instructions, but it's not until you actually do it and complete the task that you think, well, I actually know how to do it. It's this sense of knowledge that comes, this co-natural sense, through doing through entering into that which we're learning about. So that's very true for that practical level. It's also true on a more sort of abstract or intellectual level. So if we look at, for example, moral knowledge, we can have a lot of moral knowledge and people could teach us moral knowledge. But we understand the deeper truth of moral knowledge. For example, it is good to tell the truth by actually telling the truth. We understand more deeply the importance and the truth or the goodness of telling the truth when we, for the first time, perhaps lie and then feel bad about that. And we experience that more viscerally. So this is what's called, or well, the medievals called co-natural knowledge. 
And I think this is a really important aspect of looking at education within the context of wisdom. Because it is, you know, you know, in a school or a university, we are about educating the mind. But in a deeper sense, we want that learning to go to the person being formed in that which we teach. And this is not necessarily to say that education is about morality, but it's about saying that when we teach something, we want those who are learning, not just to learn it through the head, but to enter into it in a, in a, in a more sympathetic way, to enter into, for example, in literature, to really enter into the mind and the context of the author and the story in some way in a relationship of love. And this is where co-natural knowledge really is about bringing more to the fore the relationship between knowledge and love, that there's something personal about knowledge because everything we learn, we're learning from someone else and can learn just by ourselves, but mostly we're learning from the other. And that relationship to the other is crucial in coming to true knowledge. In the Judeo-Christian sense, and then the biblical idea, to know someone was to know them in the most intimate way, even in a sexual way. That was knowledge. To know the other was that. And co-natural knowledge or this connection between knowledge and love is really about that. So, for example, even in if we're looking at academic subjects, if we're studying literature, we really need to do literature, not just just learn it on an abstract level, but we need to do it. We need to enter into it. And so the great teacher will bring the student in to the world of this work. The student, in, in a sense, is playing in, the, in that field of knowledge, whatever that knowledge is. It's not simply at an abstract level. And it's the same with, with mathematics or science or whatever it is. We learn by doing it, by doing the science, by doing the math. And by loving it, you know, that sense of you know, how much more do you learn if you love it? And that, that deep connection, which the medievals knew and, and wrote about, I think is a, is a really crucial aspect of this idea of, of wisdom in education. Again, I think we've lost a little bit, at least in the explicit sense. I mean, we all live this naturally because in some ways it's the way we learn as human beings, but we've lost it a bit in terms of being more explicitly looking to do this in our education. Now, the last thing I want to do is just speak about another aspect of wisdom in education in the context of our technological age. And um, when I first started teaching, so I was teaching in high schools for about 10 years. I was teaching mostly the humanities. And it was just sort of just as I started teaching, you know, sort of the info technology was starting to develop, starting to creep a little bit into the classroom, not so much, but a little bit. And so they, over these ensuing years, Technology is really, in some ways, I wouldn't say taken over, but it's, it's everywhere and everywhere in our lives. This has created a problem, particularly if we're looking at education as wisdom. So I just want to say a word on this in terms of, you know, thinking about wisdom and education in a technological age and the importance of wonder and silence, two things that are, that are made in some ways more difficult through technology. Recently, I spoke to, when I say recently, it was last year now, it was around exam times. 
So students in the middle of doing essays, preparing for exams, and I spoke to the students at one of our dinners to remind them that learning is not just about grades, cramming knowledge, but rather a, a lifelong wisdom and understanding. And, the, and for them not to forget about, I mean, obviously at Campion, we can be a bit more explicit about this. And I, I was just conscious that students were getting stressed. But I use as the basis of the, the talk, a classic work by, by a French Dominican priest, uh, A.D. Sertillange, called The Intellectual Life, Spirit, Conditions and Methods. It was first published in 1920, still in print, wonderful little book on the intellectual life. And I think it's an even more timely book in our technological age. So Sertillange uh, presents us with a lot of you know, really real jewels in terms of trying to reorientate us towards uh, intellectual virtues that are necessary to think deeply about the world, ourselves, and things that really matter. But I just want to focus on two of the things he encourages in terms of gaining these intellectual virtues. So the first one is wonder. And here, this is very easy. If we're talking about primary schools, this is a very easy thing, particularly early primary. Unfortunately, that's uh, sort of stamped out of us pretty quickly and we tend to, to lose it. But wonder and reverence to the world around us is obviously essential and it's an inherent weakness of our fallen nature to think that we know it all. doesn't matter what the subject is. We always think we perhaps know the answer. Wonder is that sense of the world where we think, well, it's a mystery that's sort of beyond us. We can't encapsulate the world in our small little minds. And I think, again, the Greeks are great teachers on this, especially Aristotle, I think, in his realist philosophy. That which around us is real and is wonderful, and we can explore it. It's other than us. It's true. It's real and extraordinary. So even if we're doing the natural sciences, we can gaze in awe upon that which we seek to know. Almost in a sense of contemplation, what lies before us is in some ways a mystery that deserves respect. In the humanities, we can reverence the great thinkers and artists, their ideas, their achievements to understand the world into which we have been born and, and act. And the wise person is, is one who can, in a sense, have this reverence and awe to the past, to the great thinkers, to the world around us. But this sense of awe and wonder is, is more difficult today in such a distracted age, in an age where we're constantly looking to be entertained, constantly looking to be distracted from that which we're living. And this is great shame. One of the great filmmakers of today is very big on this in his film, and that's Terence Malick. And he's, he's helped me, I think, to see the wonder in the world around us. One of his films that I really enjoy is simply called To the Wonder. You know, all these films are about encapsulating human life and experience in the context of the, the wonder around us that we can see and, and hear and experience as humans. In some ways, this is very difficult, you know, if we're talking about teenagers who you know, perhaps lost that sense, that childish innocence to the, to the world around them. But I think good teachers need to be able to demonstrate that to their students, the sense of awe and wonder in things, that respect for things around us. You know, the great 
revolution that was the Enlightenment, that, that sort of turnaround was, you know, that epistemological revolution away from the world around us more to the inner self, the inner mind, where knowledge in the mind came to be preeminent or rationalistic rather than looking at the world around us to learn in a more realist sense of, of metaphysics that went before. In some ways, we've lost that culturally, that, that sense of the realist philosophy around us. And I think, you know, there's a real place for that to be brought back, real place, that classical philosophy to be brought back, more realist philosophy. And uh, the place for metaphysics, I think, in education is very, very important. The other thing Sertiolz does is highlight the need for silence. Now, silence here does not mean lack of noise. <laughs> that can be important. Silence, in his sense, is, is also to do with simplicity and a lack of clutter. So our minds are full of clutter. And I haven't done um, a lot of research into this. I've read you know, a few different books on the whole way in which technology is changing our minds, that it's harder and harder for people to read a book. And I've even found that myself. If I'm reading a book, I have to consciously turn off my phone or put it in another room because I just have that itch to think, oh, there's a text going off. I need to check that. The uncluttered mind is a mind that is simple, not in the sense of being simplistic, but simple as in being centred, not fragmented. So our minds are naturally full of clutter today, probably more so than ever. I mean, social media is so addictive, so, so addictive. This busyness of life, popular entertainment, social media, our minds are very, very cluttered. And I feel very, very sorry for the, for the students today, apart from ourselves. But the students today do really struggle to sit still, to sit still. So many times I hear teachers say, well, you know, we can only really focus on this task for about 10 minutes. That's a max. <laughs> Goodness, that's not very long. 10 minutes. So I don't know what how to do this, particularly in a school context, but I think there's a, a real need to unclutter things. And I know schools try to do this, try to get phones away from students. I think there is a little bit more pushback against um, using too much technology in classrooms. Having said all that, though, I think in terms of certainly in awe and wonder, technology can be a, can be a good tool where, you know, things that are truly awesome are at the flick of a switch away, things that we wouldn't have been able to see at all, we can see almost live now from other parts of the world and so on. And, and if we can cultivate a sense of wonder in that rather than just a quick sensate pleasure, then I think that's um, where technology can really help in this, this idea. So just in closing then, I think wisdom in terms of integration, education in a, in a curriculum is crucial. We've just had uh, recently a review of the Australian curriculum here and there was a lot of debate around it but one of the interesting things about the uh, curriculum as put forward as a draft was the notion that there should be three overarching themes in the curriculum that all the different fields of study somehow touch on and that's important the three ideas I didn't think were good ones but I thought that's sort of what we need. And if those overarching theme were things like wisdom and truth and goodness and beauty, then I would say fantastic. 
you know, if we're looking at the overarching theme of what we're doing in our education system, you know, trying to make a student wise and what that means, then this can be a tremendous unifier in our education. What I thought was interesting that this recognition that we can have overarching themes that that each of the disciplines can feed into. But I think on a more intimate level of, of smaller schools, independent schools, you know, independent colleges, so on, this can be a really intentional approach of bringing things that which seem apart together. And again, it's not to do away with the you know the methods and the and the and the way in which um, things are done proper to each discipline. They have their own unique role to do things. But an introductory dimension in science about you know the history of science, I think, is crucial to see where it came from and who were the main contributors and why were these great philosophers also great scientists and things like that. I think that's crucial. You know, that in a science program there is a notion of that which we're studying is or inspiring and deserving of respect. That's how, that's how we approach the discipline itself, to create that sense of love of the student within that discipline, rather than simply seeing disciplines themselves as more or less utilitarian means to an end. I like science, so I'll, I'll become a scientist, and so on and so forth. And so the profile has increased, certainly, I think, in the university sector here. There is a, uh, a bit of a rebirth happening here in Australia. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much. We have a couple of questions. The first question, Paul, is from Nigel McVeigh. I'll just read it. My contention is that Shakespeare should be taught not as literature per se, but rather as a dramatic exercise. It should be performed rather than read. Would this accord with an approach of co-natural knowledge? Yes, absolutely. Back in my day, I taught Shakespeare in, in high school. And uh, so it was hard, you know, boys, teenage boys teaching uh, Shakespeare was, wasn't easy. You know, an important aspect of that was getting the students to act out certain scenes. And that, that really got, you know, Julius Caesar, that, that, that made the boys far more in tune with uh, what we were learning than before. And to learn a speech of Shakespeare, I think, is crucial for young people. To, to act it out themselves, to learn these speeches and to say them. I think that's a great example. Another one that I've come across recently, only because our students are involved here at Campion, is a project that Alpha Crucis, another Christian higher education college here in Australia, uh, is called Reenactment History. And they are doing a whole reenactment of the life of our first governor here in Australia, Lachlan Macquarie, that will be put on in, in our state parliament. And our students are loving it because they're actually you know, playing these figures in history and acting out these, these events. And so they're learning more deeply and loving more deeply the history by acting it out. So it doesn't, doesn't always fit in that to sit there and read a book of Shakespeare rather than you know, see it performed or to perform it yourself is obviously far more shallow and not co-natural. Did you want to say something quickly, Simon? Well, just, just very briefly, really. Just to respond to the point that was raised about Shakespeare, uh, like Paul, I've taught Shakespeare for many years at universities in Australia and in uh, Hong Kong. And I think that's absolutely right about the performance thing. The only thing I'd say as a slight qualifier is that in the end, it's all about the language, the obvious point. So many great directors over the years have said 
don't fuss too much about the props, the sets, even to some extent the dramaturgy, you know, the performance in a sense is secondary to the language. And if you hear it or read it, it does, or both, it doesn't matter, but it's the words. And it's the words, Paul, where the, where the wisdom of Shakespeare really lies, which is not a philosophical wisdom, it's a kind of prudentia, it's a kind of phrenesis, a, a practical wisdom. Just hear the language, that's the, that's the key thing. This is from Steve Liddell. Uh, speaking of co-natural thinking and doing, if Kohlberg is right that only 20% reach social justice stage of moral development, do you think this can be dramatically increased by education? For example, introduction of compulsory liberal arts subjects such as philosophy at senior high, as in France, EU countries. I think it's important. Say, for example, the Catholic education system in Australia is is massive, per capita the biggest one in the world. I think it's a scandal that we don't have more philosophy in our Catholic schools. We could have, but we don't. And if you know, if we're educating, I don't know, something like 30% of the country, that would be 30% of the country doing some philosophy. At least in Australia, it's hard work because philosophy, most people don't know what it is and uh, they don't see it as useful and so on and so forth. So I think it's 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 not a not an easy task, but one in which I think we need to be conscious. And where we can, we should do it. Thank you. Okay, moving along. Um, next question, Paul, is from Jonathan. He says, "Do you have any advice on how we can bring our average high school student into a sense of wonder? Images, music, words, stories, silence. What do you think works most effectively?" Yes, having taught in uh, in high schools. I'm very conscious of the difficulty of this. I think practicing silence or trying to cultivate silence in the class, like literal silence, is important. That's part of the art of teaching, really, and not an easy part. Because with a, a literal silence in the room, then other things can happen. In terms of wonder and awe in the classroom, talking about technology can be helpful. So I even just mentioned that the Terence Malick film, you wouldn't show a Terence Malick film to sort of year nine boys that struggle, but you could certainly show clips and um, with the music and the, and the cinematography and so on is, is truly awe-inspiring. But it, it's, a, it's a difficult one. You know, in a, in a religious school, obviously, you know, prayer and, and liturgy can be helpful. So there's probably more a chance where students have, have a sense of that. Yeah, it is challenging in a school. And that's where I, I think it's sort of a culture-wide issue. Just, just an example, I remember growing up, some of the deepest sort of philosophical thoughts, they weren't too deep. Any deep philosophical thoughts I had tended to be on road trips. There was nothing to distract you. There was no phones. There was no, the radio didn't work once you got about half an hour out of Melbourne. So there was no noise, endless hours. And so you started to think because you didn't have anything else to do. And you're looking around at the, the nature around you. But we've just lost that. You go on a road trip now, everyone's just got a phone, everyone's watching a movie. And that, and then we've lost that culturally, I think. But the Sunday, you know, the Sunday was a quiet time for me growing up. No sport, there was no shops. So it was a whole day where it was quieter, more silent, and we just don't have that anymore. So it's a, it's a cultural issue. It's good creative teachers, I think. The next one, Paul, is from Joe Tabuana. In regards to integration and philosophy, should 
all subjects have a philosophical component to it. For example, maths should also include the philosophy of maths. The same with science, music, or should philosophy be studied as a standalone and drawn upon all disciplines? And then Joe goes on to say, or oh, is this an example of both and? Both and. Vera, thanks for answering the question there, Joe. Yeah, I think both and, because the, the study of philosophy, even if, say, in a school, you don't have enough time, the curriculum so full and so on, even if it was sort of one-off sort of philosophy lessons, not three lessons a week, but one-off ones, this gives them concepts and ideas to get students really thinking. And then in the other subjects, you know, those philosophical concepts and ideas are drawn upon in a more explicit way would be one way that it could be done without, you know, sending, you know, your curriculum coordinators in schools into mad panic. Adding from what Joe said, he said, and would this mean that philosophy will be one of the most important disciplines in any school? And without the central importance of philosophy, a school can never be said to be really implementing a liberal classical education? I mean, I think philosophy is a key thing in terms of unifying the disciplines. So again, I don't know if it has to be formally, you know, let's have five units of philosophy a week, five hours of maths. It doesn't necessarily have to be done like that because that's sort of unrealistic in our educational sort of landscape, at least in Australia. But I do think it's crucial to be at the heart of what's happening and and that's where even those who are teaching at the school need to be exposed to philosophy to some extent because philosophy really and this is what McIntyre argues is that philosophy was crucial at least in the university for each of the disciplines to in a sense guard their own arguments against becoming illogical unreasonable and so on that philosophy was a guardian of of truth in the sense of a logical argument, uh, not falling into fallacy and so on. However it's done, I think it's important that it's that it's there. It's just been been so neglected. But again, just to add though, having said all that, everyone's a philosopher. We all philosophize all the time. I think in a school it should be made explicit what we actually do as human persons. And that these questions we shouldn't be afraid to ask them. You know, why is there something rather than nothing? Who am I as a human person? These are big philosophical questions that we should be asking all through our lives. Thank you, Paul. Yes, and we have a question from Sarah. Yes, please, Sarah. I, yeah, just was having a thought about that philosophy in the classroom, and I find that students, they take to it quite naturally and and really well. If you're delivering it within the context of a lesson and you integrate it, and it's like it pains me that, you know, our curriculum is often so dumbed down and I guess it says more about the people in charge that we kind of infanticize our adolescents who are actually quite capable of thinking deeply and they love to be respected and they love to be handed these deep ideas and have the opportunity to speak. And, in fact, the curriculum, the content, the 2D curriculum, you know, just these facts, they become three-dimensional. As soon as you bring in some kind of personal narrative or a story, like a historical narrative, a story or a philosophical point of view, they become animated and engaged. It seems to be very natural. Who would have thought? Thanks for sharing that, Sarah. That's absolutely true. And it's it's nice to hear that because yeah, often, and I fall into this trap too, of forgetting that they, you know, that they are deep thinkers. We clutter things so much that 
They're not allowed to do it. Dr Paul Morrissey, President of Campion College at the Classical Renewal Conference, talking about wisdom in education. Staying with education, let's look back to a past Big Ideas talk on what makes good teaching. Inspired teaching is shaped by the school in which it occurs, and that means by educational orthodoxy and bureaucracy, a reality of teaching that can lead to disillusionment. Former teacher Gabby Stroud. The short answer is standardisation. So the standardised curriculum, the professional teaching standards and high-stakes standardised testing. It, it came into this profession, this work, this vocation that I loved, and it crept in. It came like a shadow that just, you know, as the day wore on, got longer and cast over everything I was doing. Something happens when this beautiful, magical, creative pursuit of teaching is made to become standard. It loses mm. the magic and you lose autonomy and creativity as a teacher. And I just found myself one day in the classroom and I realised I wasn't teaching anymore. I mean, I was reading from the script. I'd turned up that day. I'd done playground duty. I'd called the role. Uh, you know, I had students in front of me. I was in a classroom. There was an interactive whiteboard. All the props were there. The stage was set. And I was, I was reading from the script, but it was not teaching. What I was doing there in that moment was not teaching. Mm. It was something. I think I was in the practice of standardisation, but it wasn't teaching. That's when I knew that all the enthusiasm and passion and love that, that I was bringing, and I was still bringing it there towards the end. I, I mean, I, I still had that and I still felt that for my students, but I wasn't able to enact it. When you say that you weren't teaching, mm. what is the teaching that you weren't able to do? I wasn't able to meet my learners at their point of need. Just as Eddie was talking about the textbook becoming the master, the curriculum had, and, and all these procedural standardised things had become the master. And so th that's what was driving things, rather than me looking at my um, learners in front of me going, you know what we need is this. You know, mm. you know what they're interested in is this. And also all that standardisation takes up time and it took me away from building absolutely crucial relationships yeah. with the students that, that I taught. Something that, that you can see easily when you chat with Eddie is, is his personable nature. You know, you just feel like he's the, the teacher everyone wishes that they had. And part of that is, you know, that, that personality shining through. We feel that connection and that relationship. And suddenly I'm there going, oh, I think I want to learn maths from mm. this person because he's, he's bringing himself to the classroom. Yeah. We, need to, we need to allow teachers to do that, to bring themselves to the classroom. Gabby writes in her book, John, about a principal who once told her that, quote, we are accountable to our students and our stakeholders. They're our clients. We need to provide evidence of what we are doing here. How has bureaucracy and managerial jargon and data collection and measurement, how has that taken over our schools? Well, it's not just happening in education, it's happening right across the country. We used to pride ourselves on being an iconoclastic country where people would uh, have a go and they'd show independence and, and spirit and uh, freedom of thought and action. And that's been gradually suffocated by this army of politicians and bureaucrats who seek to control everything 
and to bring it back to that kind of mediocrity that was so accepted in the 1950s. But it impinges upon schools every day of our lives because we get endless memos and circulars and documents telling us how we have to address this problem and how we have to fix this and what we need to do about that particular issue. And nearly all of it is completely irrelevant. All of it is couched in language which is alienating and officious and bland and lacks an author, as uh, Don Watson would say. But that's that's controlling what we do and say. It's if a we model allow that's broken, you believe, basically. Yeah, very much so. And uh, as a school, what we've done is to tick all the boxes, which takes a fair bit of work, and then to ignore what we've just uh, <laughs> agreed to abide by and go ahead and teach the way we think students should be taught and achieve the kind of relationships that Gabby is describing as something that is at the heart of all teaching. Because when we talk about the great teachers we've had in our lives, I had two in 13 years. And that's a pretty poor strike rate, mm. but they were wonderful. My grade four teacher and my grade six teacher changed my life profoundly, inspired me in many different areas, and I'm deeply, deeply grateful to them. Mm. But that was about it. Our English teacher in secondary school did teach us how to do cryptic crosswords, and I'm eternally grateful <laughs> to him for that. But, um, and he was a good teacher, but uh, the two who really inspired me were those two primary school ones. We'll come back and talk about the school that you're principal of and uh, your philosophy that you bring to that school and the schools that you run. But, David, what you bring to this critique, especially through your current book, Teen Brain, is the harm caused to teenagers by digital devices and digital screens. I'm sure that everybody in the audience can appreciate that, if you have teenage kids especially. Uh, some schools are now banning uh, mobile phones, but on the other hand, there's some approval from someone in the audience for that, uh, but on the other hand, some schools are requiring parents to buy their kids a laptop um, uh, for school. Do schools, in your view, rely too much on computers? And how do you think tablets and computers should be used in, in school settings? Uh, I think it's um, not some schools that are doing this. The latest statistics out of Victoria, for example, which is the only jurisdiction that publishes these statistics, uh, show that for every nine students in the average secondary school classroom, there are 10 devices, not including the teacher's device. So devices are now ubiquitous in most secondary schools and becoming that way in primary schools as well. The problem with that is that there's no demonstrated educational advantage in having one-to-one -one devices, which is surprising given the billions that our education systems are spending putting them in there, let alone the billions that our parents, uh, the, the parents of these children are spending putting them in. So for no advantage, we're running a significant risk not because of the devices themselves, um, but because they are a delivery mechanism for software which has as its business model addiction of teenagers. So uh, when, when you're talking about social media, Instagram, Facebook, um, etc., any piece of software which gives feedback in the form of uh, likes, views or comments, it's designed to addict particularly teenage girls, but teenagers in general, and software like gaming, which simulates danger, designed to addict teenage boys. Billions are spent producing software which they give away for free. That would be a very stupid business model if there wasn't something else to it. And the something else to it is that in order to get as many minutes of attention as they can, 
It uses everything we know about how to addict a teenage brain and then applies it. The problem with putting these devices on every school desktop is that we are providing a delivery mechanism. We might as well be providing an, an alcohol dispenser at every desktop. And that's a problem. Yes, but so you have this device that sits in front of the kids in school and on the one hand it is as you describe, yet on the other hand it is a window to all of this wonderful information, to this, in, it is like a, an entire library of everything that's available around the world that could potentially enhance education. There is no way of blocking out the bad stuff and allowing the kids to use the technology to access solely the good stuff? Of course there is, but we have to have uh, leaders and school systems that are motivated to do it. And at the moment, they're falling for the marketing line from the tech companies that these devices have to go in unimpaired and uh, unmonitored. And we're falling for that line because it's the latest and greatest thing and how they expect it to survive in society of tomorrow without the devices of tomorrow and all that sort of rubbish. 99% of the software on these devices is valuable, as you point out. But as long as we allow unrestricted access to applications which are explicitly designed to addict teenagers, we are causing more harm than good. And John Marsden is another former teacher. They discuss what makes great teaching and great schools. Check out this discussion on the ABC Listen app. There's a link on our Big Ideas homepage. That's it for now. I'm Paul Barclay. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.